am here with Prista Dorcas, the author of this amazing book for brown girls. I love this book, Prisca, and I'm really grateful that you're here joining us today. Thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I get so excited every time I walk by a bookstore. The, the beautiful thing, and I think it moves me every single time I see your book, at the bookstores is that it's always like like right there like when you first walk in and like to see your name to see the book to see that cover like it's moving every single time it's happened a few times where like I walk in and I see it and I'm so grateful that this is common now that we can we get to do that I don't think that was the case even just a few years back you know it was always the same books the same looks <laughs> the same kind of last name so to see a Latina, right, like um, a woman of color, someone who, you know, has similar roots to mine. Obviously, we, we are from different countries and whatnot, but still, just to see that, it's just so moving. And I'm just so proud and, and grateful for yourself, uh, for you and for you creating this. So thank you so much. I would love for you to share maybe a little bit about how it all started, like a little bit about your journey and tell us about you because you're from Nicaragua, which... I don't think I meet people from Nicaragua often at all. <laughs> so yeah. tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was born in Nicaragua at seven years old. My So my dad's a musician. Mm. He comes from like four generations of musicians. Our family, like we have pictures of like my great grandfather with a trumpet. Like uh. everybody in that family is a musician. All his siblings were all in his band growing up. Um, so my dad, and he also doesn't know how to read music. He's a, he can listen to something and play it perfectly afterwards. Mm. So he's like really, really talented. And when he converted to Christianity, I think the Christians were like, oh, this guy is legit. Wow. <laughs> and so they. For context, brought, about how long ago was this? Just so we have a. Um, idea. I'm going to say late 80s okay. or mid 80s. If not, yeah. So I, before I was born, my parents were already in the church, committed, like super, my dad, I was, I was aware of his ordination. I was really little, but I remember the ceremony, like it was a whole thing that they wow. did. Um, but we came on a religious visa, which they don't really, mm. it's not a visa that's really viable anymore. Mm. I think they, they phased it out years ago, but we came on a religious visa um, that was temporary, and then we overstayed, but they brought him specifically to lead the music ministry for the churches that were across the whole world, mm-hmm. um, Vedable Churches. The uh, Vedable Ministry is a, is a branch of gospel outreach. If you know gospel outreach, a sister organization of it is like World Vision. Mm-hmm. So you've heard these organizations. Yes, yes. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so they're the ones who started. Our churches were white-founded, and my mm-hmm. parents converted to it and, like, really, really love white people. <laughs> like, they, they are really thankful to white people in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yeah. But anyways, they're the ones who brought us to the U.S., and then my dad was in charge of the music ministry across all the churches, and he recorded like 
10 CDs because those CDs wow. are mine. <laughs> I mean, if I play y'all some of those CDs, you'll be surprised how many of those coritos uh-huh. everybody in Latino uh-huh. Food Churches sang. <laughs> I'm sure I sang them too, girl. I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up in the church. I was a pastor's kid, very conservative, all eyes on us kind mm. of upbringing where it was very like, don't bring shame on your dad because you know, he's doing the Lord's work and we don't want your bad behavior to reflect poorly on him. <laughs> so it was, I understood that there was a lot of pressure that was put on us to be good kids. Yeah. So I was because also like my family believed in hitting as like a oh. birthright. Like okay. it's like what God, the Biblia dice that if you want to have good kids, you hit them mm-hmm. with the rod. We even had mm-hmm. like a, this metal stick not metal i'm sorry it's wooden stick and engraved on it was the scripture that says like the rod like like use the rod to straighten your kids and stuff so it was a whole thing (laughs) and and it kept us good because we had like stockholm syndrome like we were like i don't want to get hit i love god so i i won't be bad (laughs) and i really had no no outlet like i wasn't allowed to have friends who weren't christian I wasn't allowed to go to people's houses. I wasn't allowed to go to birthday parties. I wasn't I wasn't allowed to have boyfriends. I was only allowed to have like if I was ready to get married, I would have un amigo. Mm. For like 3 <laughs> months max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Con supervisión. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you get married because it was the whole thing was para que calentarte. Why why are you going to get mm. tempted? I remember that phrase to too. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> So I grew up like that. And at 19, I was like, I guess I'm at marrying age. So I like brought my first, that's in my context again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I brought my first boy that was like an amigo. And my parents were very clear that he wasn't for me. His parents were, his mom was divorced. He was raised by a single mom. And so my parents were very judgmental in their, like a lot of, church people can be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like uh so I remember realizing that and then having to end that relationship and then the next person it was like I was like I gotta it's their checklist it doesn't matter if I have one they have a checklist so I met all their checklists and I'm I brought someone because I wanted to go to grad school so I brought a perfect specimen to the according to my parents <laughs> And uh, we got married, I applied to grad school, and we left, and uh, I think my whole world blew up as soon as I left. I had never, I didn't leave for college before that, I didn't do camp, I didn't do anything that my parents didn't have, like, strict control over everything. It was the first time leaving my parents' house, and it was, that was the first time that I, like, had wine, and, like, got wine drunk, (laughs) Wow, (laughs) one, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. that's still me though. That two glasses, I'm done. (laughs) Well, now too, but I had to go, yeah, I had a peak and now I'm back at the, yeah, (laughs) but yeah, I I went to a theology school, a divinity school, Mm -hmm. and that's mostly how it got blown up. It was like, um, you take I remember my Hebrew Bible class the first few weeks, Mm. not the first day, the professor was like we can't prove a lot of these things. It's okay. This is, we're going to tell you like what we do know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, what, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> 
I thought they found evidence of the ark. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you hear that stuff in your churches. Mm-hmm. And no, it was like, no, we can't prove any of it. If that many people were out in the desert for that many years, we would have at least found artifacts. We don't mm-hmm. have any of that. And they gave us like a very clear map of where they were. And even just hearing like some of the Bible stories, especially in the Hebrew Bible, are inspired by older mm-hmm. fables from other traditions and all of that it was just like i was like okay i base my whole life on this like my whole family based their whole lives on this <laughs> and it but it was good it was needed for me because then i was like then who am i what do mm-hmm. i believe in and i was with peers who were confronted with the same information and like a lot of them were like it's okay like i don't need this to be true i still believe in it so mm-hmm. All of us were kind of making decisions now that we were given the information. <laughs> and I made uh, a lot of decisions. And one of the big ones was I got divorced halfway mm-hmm. through my program, which from my household was like the biggest thing that I could do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that was that was halfway through it. And then I decided to like have a sexual liberation so I decided to sleep around because I was like I didn't I haven't been able to do this I want to be able to do mm-hmm. this without shame too mm-hmm. and I discovered like the power of therapy and <laughs> so many things but by the time I graduated I felt like um I I was holding a lot of hurt and pain and self-discovery that I that I was just keeping it, you know, like I was just experiencing all this stuff and it was just mm-hmm. bottling it up. And I just felt my chest get heavier and heavier. And I graduated 2015 in May, August, um, because of my posts that I was doing on Latina Rebels, mm-hmm. just the IG captions. Mm-hmm. The Huffington Post reached out and was like, you're an amazing writer. We would love for you to write for us. Okay, I want to stop you right there because, oh my gosh. <laughs> First of all, I got to say, it's interesting that when you went to that school, you kind of liberated because for me, like my church uh, was very conservative too, very conservative to the point where we couldn't wear makeup, we couldn't wear pants. Like my hair was super long, which I love long hair anyway, but you know, like we couldn't do so many things even with our own body. So I was yeah. very conservative. Yeah. And, um, you know, then I went to the, to a Christian school too, university at first. And even though it was still like, you know, Christian University, obviously, they were more open-minded than my home church. My home church was also run by um, Hispanics. Um, so, you know, there's some some of that. And um, I also felt like that liberation. So I do want to talk, though, about, before you start sharing a little bit about uh, Latina Rebels, how, how did you even begin that? Because I, I saw it in your book, and I want to share a little bit before you get into that door opening what made you start that? Uh, it was Cinco de Mayo, 2013. And I was just, I'd never been a minority in, in like the, the by definition. Mm-hmm. In Miami, the 70% of the population at the time was Latinx. Mm-hmm. And so I was used to, maybe people didn't look like me because racially Latinidad is very vast. Mm-hmm. But there was like an understanding. People People talked about like, their foods very openly there was like no really criticism on people because we were latinx or nobody really was like on me because ill you're latina it wasn't like that (laughs) so when i moved to nashville it was the first time first of all that everybody assumed i was mexican Mm -hmm. i was like wait do y'all not know other regions (laughs) what is this ignorance and it was also the first time that 
I was getting othered forever. Like it didn't matter what I said and did, how I dressed, what I, it didn't matter anything. It was all the expectations that people had based on very conservative media depictions of us. Mm-hmm. I got placed on me. And mm-hmm. so it was Cinco de Mayo, the second Cinco de Mayo I was there. And I just got pissed because everybody would be like, oh, my God, come to my house. We'll have serapes and margaritas. And it's Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. And I was like, I've never heard it celebrated ever. But like in and my for opinion, anyone listening to, if you don't know, Mexicans don't even celebrate Cinco de Mayo like back home, like in Mexico. Like it's, it's just an American thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very white American mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was out of anger. I was just upset that nobody understood. Cause I was like, I'm going to make a page to debunk all the things that white people don't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <And> also, <laughs> I'm learning a lot in this grad program. So how do I make democratize as much as this in memes and gifts and like mm-hmm. funny pictures? Like, how do we make our communities think about the things that I'm being forced to think about in a master's program? Mm-hmm. When I know so many people in my community don't get master's because I was the first in all my friend circles. I was the first in my family. Mm-hmm. So I was like mad and I just made it like it was like 30 second decision that I was like, I hate it here. I'm going to make Latino at all. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> okay. So now tell me, um, you said you wrote something and then uh, a bunch of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was tell me a little bit about that. <clears throat> big captions mm-hmm. on like identity and and like a lot of child work a lot of like pictures of me being younger and telling myself like somebody should have told you that you can you're capable of anything that the most important thing you can do is not always attached to your womb maybe you can produce things with your mind and maybe maybe your heart can do so much can love so much more and be much more expansive than what you were made to believe. That was one of the things I was writing. Okay. <laughs> and Huffington Post reached out on a DM and they were like, you need to write for us, you're a writer. And so I started writing for them September and uh, my first piece went viral November, which is the intro piece of the book right now. Wow. <laughs> Your ground girl piece went viral. And since you're, I was going to do this in a little bit, but can I, I just want to share like one paragraph. If you yeah. are listening and you love it, please buy the book because it's amazing. But I did have one little section that I want to read since you mentioned that, because it's, it's so beautiful. Like I was reading this and I was like, I swear she wrote this for me. <laughs> I think everybody feels that way. Um, Okay, so it says, you are neither here nor there, but everywhere. You carry your cultura in your veins and academia in your heart. You have not forgotten where you come from, but you have learned and earned and maybe even forced your way into spaces not meant for you. You are poderosa like that. You defy the expectations of respectability and you do not seem to care. Do you, brown girl? Oh my gosh. I it continues, but I I you know I'm not gonna spoil the whole book, but so beautiful. You definitely yeah, a writer. It, it like took off. I I was just writing I felt like I was uh, my life had changed really drastically. Mm-hmm. And I was I was I finally had a handle of what was happening. And I had and I would look at a lot of young pictures of me and I just wanted to speak all the words that people weren't speaking to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to speak all the words to me and looking at pictures of myself. And and I never thought anybody would read any of it. I never mm-hmm. thought anybody would 
connect with any of it. It never occurred to me that so many of us were struggling across the U.S. specifically. <laughs> so it can it started to connect me with like a vast community, and so I started writing a full time. So I started writing that September. By January that next year, I was writing mm-hmm. full time, and didn't haven't stopped. And wow. 2017 my agent reached out on a dm also (laughs) my literary agent Mm -hmm. and 2019 i got this book deal and now i have four projects we're working on yes i'm like oh it happened okay yeah (laughs) and you know what we so we have a lot of entrepreneurs in our community a lot of creatives and a lot of times people are like how did you get this opportunity how did you get that opportunity And what I find beautiful about your story and a lot of people that I talk to is that you weren't necessarily set out to like, oh, I'm going to write so that Huffington Post or this or that can reach out to me or I'm going to try to pitch myself. And that's experience that I have too, is that when you create from your heart, when you create authentically, when you're just really sharing, like you said, you were writing for yourself, right? So when we're creating from that space and we're authentic, um, the opportunities come. I've seen it over and over again. I talk to people and that's their recurring theme. You know, it's like the opportunities, the doors open because you are creating from your heart. You're creating. And, and I love that you said too, and I would love for you to expand on that, that you could just create from your, did you say from your mind? Or I don't want to misquote you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so maybe uh, talk a little bit more about that. <clears throat> Yeah, I I think for me it's a so in a very conservative church background, women mm-hmm. have babies and men are leaders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I grew up to think that was the only thing I could do. And I I struggle with fertility stuff and so I've discovered mm-hmm. that in my mid to late 20s and it was a very devastating reality because I was I was taught that being a mother was the most fulfilling thing I could do. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't have babies. And I was like, then what did I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then who am I? And what can I provide to this world? And then I started writing. And it turns out I can provide a lot. And I can create outside of my womb. And I can, and then it's all coming from my heart, from things that I've learned, mm-hmm. first of all, from my mind, but mm-hmm. it, it's been one of those things that it, it has shattered my own, all the expectations that were placed on me and I believed to be true, it shattered them when I discovered, like, I can create outside of my womb, and mm-hmm. that is as valid as anything else I can create within it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about meritocracy. Yeah. We'll talk about it in the book. Tell me a little bit about your process, your process with that, like, because for me, myself, too, when, you know, being in a really conservative church, and also just, so I was in Utah, once I immigrated to the U.S., I immigrated when I was almost 15 with my family, and, you know, I was in Utah, and I think there was a lot of pressure that at the time I didn't notice it, because I've always been like a go-getter, even when I was back in my country, I was always a go-getter, but um, you know, looking back, I was always trying to prove myself, always trying to like, you know, be the straight A student, always doing my best. And I think part of it, and if I mention, maybe you have something to say to that. Part of it was 
<clears throat> you know, I was the first, the oldest uh, out of my siblings. So there is that pressure of like being the example and whatnot. Also, my mom, you know, growing up in Argentina, we were really poor and like my mom was always working so hard. So I kind of grew up with that mindset of I don't want to be an added problem, right? Like she has so many challenges already. She has so many things on her plate. Like I'm going to be a good kid, <laughs> you know? Um, but then I, you know, I moved to the U.S. and we started going to this church and like, now it's like all that gets like amplified right like you have to, the, the seeking perfection right um never being good enough no matter how I, I look back I'm like I was like a saint back then I was so naive and innocent but you know it was never enough to them and at that moment in those times in those years I genuinely believed that it wasn't enough like I was always striving like to, for perfection and um, to earn things right to um especially as an immigrant to prove that I wasn't like the stereotypes, you know, that you hear about on media. And so I want you to maybe share a little bit more about that and your journey with that. And how did you come to, to that realization and, and kind of change that mindset? Yeah. So meritocracy, just to define it, I guess, is like the idea that it's that bootstraps metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that you can, if you work hard, you can do anything you put your mind to. It's what mm-hmm. we sell kids a lot of messaging. It's just like, mm-hmm. if you if you really focus on something, you can accomplish whatever your heart desires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you believe it to be true. You hear it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Even like a, a more Christian version of that, if God is, if you are with God, you will be blessed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I actually if you learned, do things right. Yeah. If you follow like the doctrine and yeah. the rules and the leaders. And like if I, anything goes wrong, it's a reflection of something that you're not doing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. with God. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I had both of those messagings like hitting mm-hmm. me all the time. And I remember it was in my theology school, my master's program. Um, it was when we started ethics. The ethics professor said, this class will deal with why do bad things happen to good people? We answer the question of theodicy with ethics. So bad things happen to good people, not because there's this overlord mm-hmm. <laughs> controlling and just like, you know making things happen against us rather racism classism xenophobia mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and the, and the list is long ableism mm-hmm. uh, so when i started to get all that terminology i was like okay so when you work hard you might not make it mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a game changer it was a game changer and it made me it helped me reframe a lot of um, the ways that I viewed other people mm-hmm. in our communities, it made me, it made me realize how much harm there is when we vilify people who need help. Mm-hmm. It, a lot of that. And, but it took me, <clears throat> it wasn't just learning that it was also like, I was experiencing it. I was in my graduate program working really, really hard to get all those A's, but mm-hmm. I wasn't getting the A's because it was the first time I had gone to state school for undergrad. Mm-hmm. And like I kicked butt in my school. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Like it was a state school and I loved it. It was an HSI Hispanic serving institution. And I did really well in school there. Mm-hmm. And then um, so that's how I had the grades to get into a graduate program. Mm-hmm. So I started my graduate program and Vanderbilt is a small, private mm-hmm. elite university with a huge endowment. And the the difference was shocking. Mm-hmm. Like um, like I remember 
like being in a class where we were about to we were just checking out the syllabus and somebody caught like oh are we reading uh judith butler judith butler is a queer theorist mm. he was uh, one of my peers was like oh my god we're reading jubu i love jubu i read jubu in my dad's library growing up jubu is the best you're gonna love jubu puskar <laughs> like it was like a whole mm. thing and i was like mm. <laughs> I haven't read any of this. Yeah. <laughs> and y'all, and it was constant. Like a lot of my peers, not only had they read it, and if they hadn't read it, they were at least familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was, I, I would get the book and walk around my apartment reading out loud because I didn't even know how to read most of the academic mm-hmm. stuff that I was being given. <laughs> like you have to train that muscle in your brain. Yeah. And I just hadn't trained it. Mm-hmm. And they had because they had the cushion of like, two parents working in a household mm-hmm. with like a, a lot of income like parents who everybody knew they were gonna retire someday mm-hmm. whose grandparents were still alive because mm-hmm. they could retire because they could rest they didn't have to work till they died mm-hmm. <laughs> um so I was like I can't compete with these people no matter how hard I try I can't catch up to somebody who grew up with a library mm-hmm. I can't so I I also was like and I don't have to blame myself for it mm-hmm. this isn't my fault and maybe what I need to do is just start to shift the way that I view what it, what is a good person. So maybe if things go bad, it isn't that God isn't blessing me. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that I'm not working hard. Maybe it's just racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you get all that language, it gives a lot of power back instead of you just sitting there being like, I didn't do enough. I should have done more. Mm-hmm. I could have done better. I Because you, you stay in the cycle of mm-hmm. self-blame mm-hmm. until you, like, I think, have a meltdown. Mm-hmm. because that's where I was headed and so I had to relinquish all those expectations that I was all the messaging that I had been hit with and be like I have to be okay with who I am how I got here mm-hmm. and then I can keep going forward but it took a sh- huge shift in the way that I talked to myself in private <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in the ways that I uh, penalized myself when I didn't do as well as other people all of that it shifted a lot of my own stuff yeah I think that's beautiful too because um it kind of shows that you know that we are acknowledging these things whereas where we think it's just about accomplishing something like if you follow these steps you know you're gonna do well and if not something's wrong with you right because you're like I followed all the steps I went to school what not graduated what not why why am I not getting a job or why am I not getting paid this much or whatever the American dream right the American mm-hmm. dream that gosh like <laughs> that's like a whole conversation in itself and mm-hmm. so I think it is beautiful to acknowledge like these things exist these things do set different people at different stages and places in a race right it's kind of like that video that went viral where like you know some people are starting with like you know way ahead of other people and these are facts these are things that exist so as we acknowledge that we can be more compassionate with ourselves and also others right because just like that I've had more privilege than other people have and you know it's it's really like a spectrum and so thank you so much for for sharing that and one more thing that I would love to talk to you about real quick is colorism because in Latin America colorism is and here too everywhere but you know especially in Latin America I think it it's kind of interesting that it happens because you would think right like um we would be ahead by now <laughs> we would know better right now yeah yeah uh so I write about uh colorism because 
like I said, being Latina, Latina keys, there's, we're all, we're racially diverse. Like mm-hmm. we have black people in Latin America a lot. We have mm-hmm. a lot of indigenous people in Latin America. We have a lot of people mixed with indigenous people in Latin mm-hmm. America. And we have European people go to places like Argentina. They're full of Italian. My country. That's my country. <laughs> yeah. There's like certain places that are hubs yeah. for a lot of European people who mm-hmm. culturally might be Latino keys, but are very European. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I talk about uh, colorism uh, within the non-black Latino key experience because mm-hmm. colorism affects black people mm-hmm. also. But um, primarily, I think, and colorism is anti-black mm-hmm. as a concept. And so what I write about it is um, in our countries, in non-black spaces, we do a lot of like, but don't be too brown then. Do whatever you can to not be looking like an indígena. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do whatever you can to lighten as much as you can. Marry lighter. Mm-hmm. Light people are the goal. Like level up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this blancamiento that really, really is encouraged, that we normalize, that we talk about. It's like it's it's everywhere. You literally can't go to a family gathering and not hear mm-hmm. anything about that. And if even if like I've now I'm in more spaces that are more accepting of all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even all that, like I'll have I'll hang out with people and the thing in the room will be like, oh my God, te ves tan bonita, indígena, te ves tan, like, and it's like, can it, can we just exist though? Yeah. Can we just like, yep. why did, why is it even in the room when we're all really aware that it shouldn't even be in the room? I mean, it's, I mean, you, I probably you've experienced it. Like I've had, because yeah. I grew up in a Latina key context. I, in Miami, mm-hmm. I had boys date me on dares who were Latina Oh, wow. I, I was called uh, India all the time. I was mm-hmm. I was very much ridiculed because I do look more, quote unquote, traditionally mm-hmm. indigenous. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I think it's, I don't know why people, I don't know. I haven't heard people talk about the anti-indigenous mm-hmm. rhetoric within colorism in non-Black Latinx communities. But I knew that I wanted to write about it and I knew that it had to be written about it. So I wrote through all those experiences and stories. Yeah, and you did, and I think it's beautiful because you mentioned how, because we're mixed, right? Most a lot of um, Latinx people, we we do have, including myself. You know, I have European roots, I have Middle Eastern roots, I have Indigenous roots, right? From what I uh, learned, and so something that was interesting when I was reading the book is that you know a lot of people like will forget to mention the Indigenous or like the Black if they have that, but like they will focus on oh yeah we have European like Spanish or this or that um, and it's true right when I look back uh, even in my country and other Latin Americans you know they will say they will they're like oh I'm you know Mexican but my family's from Spain or something but obviously there's other mixes in there but mm-hmm. we conveniently select the ones that we probably think are better because we've been indo- indoctrinated that way mm-hmm. um Another thing interesting about colorism, I remember, you know, growing up, uh, you know, when I was young in Argentina, like I, a lot of people would be like, oh, you're so pretty. Like if I was with my cousins, I was like the lightest one. And so they'd be like, so pretty, so pretty. And I, I remember I would think as a little girl, like my cousins were gorgeous, you know, mm-hmm. like to me as a little kid that doesn't think like colorism, right? Hasn't been indoctrinated. 
I would think like, why aren't they telling her? Like, she's so pretty too, you know? Like, I actually thought my cousins were prettier than me, you know, just maybe because women, we, I don't know, we see the beauty in others, but I would be like, why aren't they telling her that, you know? Like, why aren't they telling my brother that, you know? Um, so so there, there's that. And then <clears throat> another experience that would happen a lot is once I moved to Utah, um, everybody there is like super wide, blue eyed, right? Mm-hmm. And all, I remember my friends and I didn't really think anything of it at the time, but as I started doing the work later on, like in college, like this happened mostly in college, but like after I graduated, started growing up a little bit more, like opening my mind. I, I remember that my, a lot of my college friends, even my best friend at the time in college, um, you know, they were all obviously white, blue eyed and, or like really light eyes and then they would say it a lot like this is our our brown friend you know like I was kind of like the token friend like this is our brown friend you know meet her this is like or we have this brown friend or like any like it would come up like in conversation that we're like you don't usually like address like skin color right like when I introduce my friend it's like this is my friend Jesse you know this is but it would be like this is our brown friend Jesse or like just mm-hmm. you know random times when it you know at the time in the moment it didn't mean anything to me like or I thought it didn't but then as I started reading literature and becoming more aware of these things later on I was like oh yeah my college friends always said that and like I don't know why <laughs> like why why was that like emphasized right like it's it's so the, there are so many layers to that and like I was still like a white Tina to a lot of um you know latinx people and then like in my white friends i was like the brown friend right so it's kind of like that's why i love when you said in that section that i read like i'm not from here i'm not from there because i felt like that all the time and not just on that level but on so many other levels where it's like i don't really know where i'm from you know and i'm from everywhere at the same time you know and it's just um i think it's being latinx is so um it's, it's such an interesting culture. It's such an interesting thing because there is a lot of diversity. There are so many things that come into place. It's really complex. Mm-hmm. I think like other, other places and in, in cultures are a little bit more defined where like with us, like there's so many like layers that people don't understand and they kind of like put everyone in the same bag and the stereotypes and everything. Um, and so I think a lot of Latinx people feel that way. Like, I'm not from here. I'm not from there. Am I light? Am I dark? You know, like, why does it even matter? Uh, and it, yeah, like you said, can I just be Jesse? <laughs> can mm-hmm. I just be Jesse? And also honor the experience that we've had and also honor that, yeah, like I've lived this or that and I've come from here and I've lived here forever and, you know, all the things uh, that come with that. So I, honestly recommend the book because you really break down and you have other topics too that you break down um like toxic masculinity and all these other topics that truly got me thinking about my experience as I would read I would read your stories and then I would kind of reflect on mine like how did this affect me like colorism what that which is why I'm thinking about these things now right because we have people speaking up about these topics before it didn't even occur to me back in back then when I was in college, like, oh yeah, I've experienced colorism, right? I didn't even have a term at the time to name what I was hearing or experiencing. So thank you so much for bringing those things to light. Yes, thank you. It is like, I think 
I was somebody who was given very different information in life too. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I learned it, it was like, why doesn't everybody know this? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like my life mission is to get as many people on the same page <laughs> because I think it is transformative information. Mm-hmm. I think it is. And maybe it's because I come from like a Christian context that it was very much about like spread the gospel but i'm like no this gospel's better so i'm gonna spread this one (laughs) because people do need to have more control of their lives people should have answers to like experiences that they've had instead of being like oh maybe you imagined that yeah no like you didn't you probably didn't and so this is what happened and i i want to be if i get to be the person that gives people the names to things that they've experienced then i think that's a very lucky position to be Mm -hmm. in yeah, you're educating and also validating the experiences, right? Like maybe I never thought it was a thing because I didn't have a term to coin it or I didn't have a, I hadn't read the books, right? And now I've, I'm still learning and I'm learning so many things. So it's not to say that I know, you know, I, I'm, I even as I was reading your book and I can't think of an example right now, but there were a couple of times where I was like, oh, I'm still doing that, you know, like, um, and so it's, it's kind of like learning and unlearning all the time, yeah. and, you know, it's just, it's, it's beautiful, and for anyone listening, like, even if you are not Latinx, it, it's so important to understand these things, right, how do we relate to other people, how do we understand other people, and I've always been fascinated by that, I've always been fascinated by reading about history, reading, and, and also what history, right, <laughs> we have to be uh, mindful of what history books we're reading in the, yeah, the context who's and who's writing it right I think it's yeah. so important and so thank you for anyone that listens to my podcast my podcast I interview a lot of women of color but I also have a lot of listeners that aren't right women of yeah. color and I'm grateful for those people because they're showing up to these stories right they're learning they're they're um, getting that experience and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that too so thank you so much for shedding light on that and I totally recommend, if you haven't yet, to get this book for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts. Thank you so much, Priska, for being here with us. And and yeah, if, you, if people want to find you, how can they find you? Yeah, uh, everywhere. I'm at Latina Rebels or at Priska Dorcas, but everywhere pretty much is the same thing. All right, so make sure to check her out. Thank you, everyone. Besos. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hey Dreamer podcast. And most importantly, thank you for showing up for yourself and your dreams. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to write a review and send me a screenshot of it to my DM at Jesse Medina Official so that I can post it and tag you on it. And remember, dream and create. Besos!